Well, please go ahead and find Mark chapter 9 in your Bible. Um, We'll get to that in just a moment. I'd like to say a thank you to my fellow elder, Mark Goldman, for preaching last week. Appreciate that, Mark. He preached on sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And uh, basically, just to summarize some of his message, God has appointed many different authorities in this world, whether it be church authorities, whether it be governmental authorities, whether it be family roles and so forth. But there is one authority that he's given us that is above all the other authorities, right? It's the God-breathed scriptures. And Mark took us to 2 Timothy to look at what scripture is. And sola scriptura means essentially that The scriptures alone are the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. The church itself is not infallible. The church's leaders are not infallible. Church tradition is not infallible. The only thing that we have that's infallible is the living word of God, right? And so we have to evaluate everything in its light. In Scripture's light, whether it's a claim somebody makes, um, a teaching, uh, a method, a worldview, an opinion, whatever it is, that thing is to be evaluated in the light of Scripture. And there's no other authority equal to Scripture since Scripture comes straight from God. So I appreciate you, Mark, bringing that um, doctrine to our attention last week, and uh, he'll continue that sola, the five solas series, the five solas of the Reformation, he'll continue that as a series the next times that he preaches, which I think the next one is scheduled in November, if I'm correct, unless I get sick at some point and he has to fill in, but for sure in November, if not sooner. So, Today, let's continue our verse-by-verse through Mark. We're up to Mark 9, verse 30, as you see on the screen there. We're going to cover Mark 9, 30 to 32. And last time, what we saw was Jesus had healed this boy who had a demon oppressing him. This demon was trying to destroy him by throwing him into these epileptic fits, trying to throw him into the water, trying to throw him into the fire, and a number of of truths, I guess, became apparent as we read that. I'll simply point you to that recording if you missed it. I'll try not to take time reviewing, even though I'm tempted to. But let's turn now to uh, Mark 9, 30 to 32, and just follow along with me as we read it out loud, or as I read it out loud. This is the word of the living and true God. It says this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. 
I want to point this out to you as we get into this. This is actually the second time in Mark that Jesus has predicted his own death and resurrection to his disciples. He first did it back in chapter 8, and he'll go on again to repeat this a third time in chapter 10. So he explicitly predicts his own death and resurrection to his disciples three different times. And so what I'd like to do is point out four things that this repeated prediction teaches us. Okay, that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. Here they are on one slide so you'll know where we're going. Number one, it reiterates to us the reason why he came. Number two, it highlights the sovereignty of God, specifically in this second prediction that's in front of us today, and we'll see how in just a minute. Number three, it demonstrates his love and resolve. We'll see that in a minute as well, but he states it so matter-of-factly. He was going to accomplish what he came to do. And then four, it strengthens and encourages us to see that Jesus, in these predictions, always pairs his death with his resurrection. In other words, this is not a story of defeat. This is a story of victory. So we'll just leave that slide up for the rest of the time today so you'll know where we're at in the flow of things. But let's begin to look at those one by one if we can. Number one, what does this repeated prediction teach us? It reiterates the real reason why he came. If you remember back in Luke chapter 24, part of that passage demonstrates to us what the prominent view of the Messiah was at that time. This is after Jesus is killed, and there's these travelers on the road to Emmaus, and here's one thing they say. They say, first of all, they're very sad that Jesus had died. And they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Luke 24, 21. They thought that he was going to be this great liberator. They thought the Messiah was going to come on the scene and wipe out the Romans from oppressing them and set up an earthly kingdom with his people Israel. But Jesus, as we know, does not conform to man's ideas of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Instead, what does he say is going to happen? He says he's going to suffer and he's going to be killed and three days later he's going to rise. And even for his apostles... That didn't quite compute up here. At least for a while, it didn't compute. And keep in mind that he's teaching, as we saw in the first part of our passage, he's privately, he didn't want anybody to know that he's passing through Galilee again because he's privately teaching these men. These men, these personal students of Jesus, these 12 apostles would go on to become the foundation of the Christian church, right? We read that in Ephesians. Ephesians tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus being that cornerstone. So 
in order for them to be that foundation and in order for them to rightly communicate what Jesus had actually come to do and what he was going to accomplish, they needed to know straight from him, what is your mission exactly? And so without them even having to ask, he tells them, and he tells them repeatedly. And his mission, again, was not to liberate them from the Romans, neither was it merely to preach or to teach or to work miracles. The ultimate reason was this. He came to offer himself as the sacrificial lamb in the place of all those who would ever believe on him for salvation. That's what he came to do, to die. So he didn't come to liberate the Jews from the Romans. He came to liberate Jew and Gentile from sin and hell and death. So he was a liberator in that sense, but in a far greater sense than what they even imagined. And it was going to be accomplished in a way that they never imagined. You're going to die? And it says here, especially after Peter, you remember what happened to Peter after Jesus made the first prediction. He says, don't say that, Lord. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way. You're hindering my work. So maybe this second time, that's why it says they were scared to ask him because they didn't fully know what he meant by this death and this resurrection. Was he speaking figuratively? Was this literally? What exactly is he talking about? You ask him. I'm not asking him, you know. Maybe there was that attitude. I don't know. But he keeps repeating this prediction three different times. And it tells us, I think, one thing at least, it reiterates the reason why he came. Listen to J.C. Ryle on this. He says, quote, It is not for nothing that he reminds us again that he must die. He would have us know that his death was the great end or goal for which he came into the world. He would remind us that by that death, the great problem was to be solved, how God could be just and yet justify sinners. He did not come upon earth merely to teach and preach and work miracles. He came to make satisfaction for sin by his own blood and suffering on the cross. Let us never forget this. The incarnation and example and words of Christ are all of deep importance, but the grand object which demands our notice in the history of his earthly ministry is his death on Calvary, end quote. Ryle is saying, of course, that out of all that Christ did in his earthly ministry, this is the biggest and most important thing. He died for sinners. He laid down his life on the cross. He was a substitutionary atonement for his people. So in a very real sense, I know we like to talk about it at Christmas time because it's especially potent at that time on our minds, but in a very real sense... Jesus was born to die. He wasn't, um, he wasn't robbed of his life. 
He wasn't a victim. He laid it down of his own accord. He said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. This authority has been given to me by my Father. So it is a central truth of the Christian faith that Jesus came to save sinners by his life, death, and resurrection. I wonder if that's our message to the world or is our message getting confused? What do people see if people had to take a, a little quiz and, and they said, they pointed at you and said, what's his main deal? What means the most to him? What do you think? Would they say some hobby of yours? Would they say some political message that you're constantly engaged with? Or would they say that man, that woman centers around this one thing. Whether I agree with them or not, they center around this one thing. Christ died for sinners. And they know they're one of them. And they want to tell everybody else how to be right with God. This repeated prediction just highlights the centrality of what our real message is, right? In verse 32 again, it says they didn't understand. But... We know that these apostles did eventually get it. We're sitting here. We have their words in front of us. If they didn't get it, we wouldn't be here. There would be no foundation for the Christian church ever laid. There would be no New Testament, right? They got it. But it did take Jesus actually rising from the dead, as he said, for them to finally get it. And they wrote these eyewitness accounts, and they wrote these letters telling us the theological implications of what Jesus did, that he came to die for sinners, to ransom them, and everything hinged upon that act. By his blood, we are made right with a holy God. So that is one thing I think that this repetition of Jesus, he doesn't just tell them once or twice, he tells them three times, gentlemen, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise. They finally figured out what that central message was, and we have it today. Praise God we do. Number two, not only does it reiterate the real reason why he came, but number two, it highlights the sovereignty of God. you got to notice with me in verse 31 what Jesus says. He says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, from a human standpoint, we know that Judas was the one who ends up betraying Jesus and, in a sense, delivering him into the hands of the religious leaders of their day, which ultimately leads to Jesus' death. But here we get this statement in Mark 9.31 that says, Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men. There is a divine element to this. He's saying God is the one delivering him into the hands of men, in a sense. There is one outside the realm of men who is going to deliver him over to little sinful men. Listen to R.C. Sproul commenting on this verse. 
quote, Jesus did not have the actions of Judas or any other person in this world in mind. He was making the point that he was being handed over or delivered at that very moment, and the one handing him over was the Father. Jesus was being sent to Jerusalem to fulfill his office as Messiah. From all eternity, it had been agreed among the members of the Trinity that the Father would send the Son into the world to bring about his plan of salvation for his people. At this point, Jesus had to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Jesus was accepting of that deliverance. He had come to do the will of the Father. And to do that, he had to suffer at the hands of sinful people. So the Father's plan to hand him over to fulfill his destiny was now drawing to its climax, end quote. Do we, um, do we recognize that the worst event in human history the crucifixion of the only innocent person who has ever lived, the Son of God Himself, the worst event you could possibly imagine was also predetermined by God to happen just as it did. Is there a place in your theology for something that deep? I hope there is because it's clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. Maybe nowhere else is as clear as it is in Acts uh, 2.23. Listen to this verse, and I'll quote another one, or read another one to you from Acts 4. But Acts 2.23 is something that Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost. Listen to what he says. This Jesus delivered up, sound familiar? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wow. Acts 4, 27 to 28 says it this way. It's a recorded prayer by a group of early Christians. They were praying like this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow. So, even in the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ by the hands of sinful men, lawless men, God was sovereign. He had orchestrated and predestined this from eternity past. It's part of his sovereign plan all along. Now that is not really ammunition for any debate, I don't think. I think it's a cause for encouragement to us. Because if God is sovereign over the worst sin to ever be committed, the killing of his own son, then doesn't that teach us that God is sovereign over everything in this world? Everything. In other words, sinful men are not thwarting God's plan in the least. 
Sinful men and sinful women are not changing his plan. They are not degrading his plan or causing him to go to plan B or C or D. Everything is happening according to the purpose of his will. Even as these lawless men drive in the nails into his hands and feet, even then, God is overruling what is going on. That is amazing. Do you have a place in your theology for that level of sovereignty? Because that's who God is. So this statement in, by Jesus in verse 31 highlights for us the sovereignty of God to deliver him up for his own glorious purposes. And it's interesting to note that in other places in Scripture, we read about Jesus being delivered up by his Father. In other places, we read of him delivering himself up. And that ought not surprise us. Uh, we're Trinitarians, aren't we? We believe in Trinitarian doctrine. Um, Jesus and the Father are of one mind. They are one, three persons in one essence and one being. So they're perfectly on the same page in everything they do, right? But let me point out a couple verses to you just to show that Jesus was most certainly delivered over to men, as stated in our verse, by his Father as well as by his own will, being totally in accord with his Father's will. One is a very familiar verse, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is the same Greek word that's used in Mark 9, 31 for delivered. He who did not spare his own son, but Gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God the Father delivered his son up for his people. He would not spare him, but gave him up. And the verse's point there is that if he's done that, as the verse states, what is there that he won't? give us if he's already given us his best and most precious thing, right? Romans 4.25 uses this word also when it says um, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the idea there being God delivered Jesus to be the sin bearer of his people. And then we could even look at Isaiah 53, that very familiar Old Testament passage, that famous Messianic passage. We see the same language. If we look at the Greek um, Old Testament, the Septuagint, it says in the same way this delivered up by God type of language. It says in verse 6, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Many of us know that verse. The Septuagint words it this way, and the Lord handed him over for our sins. So laid on him and handed him over for our sins. Same Greek word there. It's interesting. 
And then we can jump over to Ephesians and we see that the Lord Jesus is said to have delivered himself up for us. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Later on in that same passage, we read uh, Ephesians 5, 25, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So all these verses use this same way of speaking, this same terminology for what Jesus says is happening to him in Mark 9, 31. He's being delivered over into the hands of men. And that is a divine sovereignty thing. It's not outside the purview or control of a sovereign God. He's being delivered over according to his plan. And as the second person of the Trinity, he's being delivered over according to his own will as the will of him and his Father are one. God is sovereign. That is something we love to speak about. So for people who love the sovereignty of God, can you trust him? Does he possess the power and the control necessary to bring about what he's promised? We believe in his sovereignty, right? We can trust him then. Does he have the power and control that's necessary to bring about the promises of Romans 8.28, for instance? Does he have what's necessary to take evil and overrule it in such a way that ultimate good comes about? Because if he's not sovereign over evil, then Romans 8.28 and so many other things are meaningless and are even a lie. If he's not sovereign over every little thing, the promise is in vain. The promise that he's working all things, big, small, what we would call bad, good, whatever. Evil things, good things. He's working all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And God is no liar. Neither does he let, um, neither does he let sinful creatures dictate to him what comes to pass in his universe. Even if they're men on the highest earthly level there is. So if you want... Exhibit A, that God is sovereign, or exhibit A of what Joseph was talking about in Genesis 50, that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If you want exhibit A for that, look no further than the cross. There it is. And I think that comes out if we dig into verse 31 and think about what that's saying. That's why I think it highlights the sovereignty of God. Now, not only... Number one, does it, this repetition um, of this prediction show what he came to do? Not only does it highlight the sovereignty of God and what was about to happen, but then thirdly, it demonstrates the Savior's love and resolve for sinners. I don't know if you noticed this. I'm sure you do. I noticed that Jesus doesn't seem to be on any sort of emotional roller coaster as he's predicting these things. You notice that? He's not making these predictions as a victim 
as some powerless bystander in some evil scheme. He's not saying, gentlemen, I'm, I really wish it wasn't like this, but I think I'm going to be killed. It's, he states these things in such a matter-of-fact way, doesn't he? It's like he's saying, for the purpose of building up their faith, here's what's going to happen. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again. Just like that. Matter of fact. And he does it three different times in the book of Mark. These predictions are spoken like a man who is in total control of his circumstances. It's not spoken like a man who felt as though his world was caving in. This is not spoken as a man who thought the world was unraveling. His life was unraveling around him. Do you notice that? At the uh, G3 conference of, where's that been now? Two weeks ago, roughly? I got to hear a man named Scott Brown teach for the first time. I've never heard him speak. I got to attend a, uh, it was called a breakout session. It was about teaching the sovereignty of God to children. I said, I want to go to that. So I was, it was standing room only, and I sat down. We were all sitting around the edges. Every seat was filled. But in there, he told us that there was something his wife at one point had encouraged him with relating to the sovereignty of God. They had a, he was a businessman at the time, and whatever kind of business he was running was beginning to have a lot of trouble. And he was becoming very anxious. This was their sole source of income. It was their livelihood. And one day he thought, you know, he kept it from his wife a little bit to try to fix things. And eventually he said, I need to tell her what's going on. So he goes to his wife and he tells her basically that the business was beginning to unravel. That was the word that he said. He was very fearful, he was very anxious at the time. And, she, and he said that his wife looked at him and said these words. She said, Scott, nothing is unraveling. God is weaving. <laughs> and I thought, wow. Maybe we ought to remember that the next time we're tempted to think, man, this, everything's just unraveling. And I think of that illustration. I didn't come up with it. I don't know the first person to use it. But if you notice those, those weavings, those tapestries, if you look on one side, it's a beautiful picture. You look on the other side, it's nothing but strings, random strings. Well, God is weaving his tapestry in his sovereignty. We're seeing the strings hanging down. But he's weaving a masterpiece on the other side that we might not see. Maybe we'll get to understand more about it later. Maybe in this lifetime, maybe not. Maybe not until heaven. But I love what she said. Nothing is unraveling. God is weaving. I love that. And the way that Jesus makes these predictions in such a matter-of-fact way, that shows us how much that he trusts his Father's plan fully. He doesn't believe anything is unraveling, even as he's coming to his death. He's in total control of what's happening. And this isn't a prayer request either. He doesn't say, gentlemen, will you please pray for me that I would not be captured and killed? No. He states everything like it's a done deal. 
He's not in the least worried that the plan isn't going as originally planned. He is fully confident that everything is happening according to God's will. Do you see that? So what does that demonstrate to us? It demonstrates, does it not, that our Savior had resolved in his own heart to carry out this mission of which we are now beneficiaries. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and to accomplish what he came to do. And there was nothing that was going to divert him from accomplishing that. That is love. That's why I worded it the way I did in, in point three there. This demonstrates not only resolve, but love. The heart of love to keep him going when he knew what was coming. The amount of suffering, the amount of ridicule. We're talking about the sovereign Lord being spit upon and ripping his beard out and slapping him and punching him, driving nails, even before that, ripping his flesh off of his back. And then none of that was even the worst part. The worst part was taking the wrath of God that was due to us. He took all that and he knew it was coming and he doesn't try to run. He doesn't try to get out of it. He doesn't even act like, he, like it's even an option to divert or change this path. He knows what the plan is. And he just says, here's what's going to happen, gentlemen. And he does it. That is amazing. Sets his face like a flint to accomplish this mission. That's language from Isaiah. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 50, verse 7. And it's speaking of this Messiah figure, this servant of God who is going to come rescue his people. He sets his face to do the will of the Father. Just sets his face like an immovable stone. Nothing's going to get him distracted. He's going to do this out of love for his people. If that's not love demonstrated, I really don't know what is. Do you? He knew exactly what he was getting into. And he did it. He went through with it all the way. While we were yet sinners, by the way, Christ died for us. Lastly, number four. This repeated prediction the way that it's worded each time, it strengthens and encourages us to note that Jesus, in these predictions, always pairs his death with his resurrection. I love that, don't you? In all three of these death predictions, he always mentions his resurrection. Let me just read them to you real quick. The first one was back in Mark 8.31. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Then we see it here in this second prediction in verse 31. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then later in Mark 10, 34, 
He says, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is important because, as I said earlier, Jesus does not view this, this story of his life, this narrative of his whole life, he does not view this as a defeat story. He views it as a story of victory, because that's what it is. This isn't a tragedy, in other words. It's more like a comedy. Listen to this poem by a man named Glenn Scrivener. It's called Divine Comedy. It's like a spoken word kind of thing, slash poem. Next, cameras rolling, action. What is life? What kind of tale? Comedy or tragic fail? Not is life funny, it's mostly not, but is it hopeful? What's the plot? The classic tragedy is a frown. You travel up, then tumble down. In turn, a comedy is a smile. You plumb the depths, but end in style. It's not about the laughs or pain, it's all about the final frame. Flick to the end and simply question, is there a wedding or a funeral procession? That's the difference, now we ask, what should the actor's mask, or what should be the actor's mask? In this world, what stories, what stories sold? Is the happy ending told? No, here's the pattern. Each wretch stumbles up the compost heap, then tumbles down to loneliness and loss. But painted thinly, this the gloss, a glistening hedonist directive, make attainment your objective, grasp and grab and climb and take and perish, nevermore to wake. Your life is tragic first to last, no matter how the middle's cast. We're biological machines reading glossy magazines. So swirl your latte, watch the clock as time ekes out, tick-tock, tick-tock. Unless, unless one story comes in view, unless the comedy is true, the author written in to twist the plot within our tangled mist to plumb the tragedy and gloom Kill death by dying, split the tomb, and by this anti-entropy to wreak sublime catastrophe. Now through the valley, death destroyed, he pioneers a cosmic joy. By this tale, excuse me, beside this tale, there's only sorrow. He alone secures tomorrow. Hope for earthed embodied living, future righted, wrongs forgiven, you see, the tragedy is vain, begins in pride and ends in pain. Forsake this desperate ever after, turn instead to Easter laughter. I love that. If Jesus' mission was just to die and stay dead, well, that doesn't make him any different than any of the other poor souls that were crucified on Roman crosses, right? That's a tragedy. A dead Savior is no tragedy at all. But what actually happened is exactly what he said would happen all three times. 
After three days, he would rise. That changes everything. That flips the story arc. If it was a frown, it flips it like this, right? From a frown to a smile. And through that glorious resurrection that he predicts would happen, it would be made plain who he was. He truly was who he claimed he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so he lays down his life, and he takes it up again, and he shows that he has authority from heaven. He has authority over the grave it's awesome in Revelation 1.18, we see Jesus speaking there, and he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. All power has been given to Jesus. And we can believe every one of his words because he backed it up by rising from the dead. And we have eyewitnesses to tell us about this. And when you think about this resurrection promise, it gets even more exciting because it, it's what that poem was about too. Because Christ has been raised, we who believe in Christ, we are going to be raised with him. Our deaths will not really be deaths. Our physical deaths is just going to be it may be painful, it may be hard, the act of dying, but ultimately it'll be just like, pull the curtain back and just step in to pure joy with God. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this, how it describes Christ as being the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If something is the first fruits, that means there's more fruit to follow. Right? In 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, Christ, the first fruits, referring to him, his resurrection, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the promise that comes out of the resurrection is one day we will be raised with Jesus. That's what Jesus has done for his people. And that's a gift unlike any other gift, isn't it? And I think it's awesome that as he predicts his death, Three different times in, the, uh, in Mark, he always follows it with, don't worry, I'm going to rise again. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. And that's really the truth of the Christian life, isn't it? We could apply that to our lives. Here, in this world, we're going to have sorrow. We're going to have tribulation. The world's going to hate us. You'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus said all these things. But we have something to look forward to, something glorious. Our sorrow is going to be one day turned into joy. I love what the psalmist said. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So for the people of God, all these things taken from this text, kind of drawn out from the text, inferred from the text, the people of God... This is our hope. This is our joy to look forward to. And none of this is going to happen. This resurrection promise and so forth. None of this is going to happen because we've achieved something great. It's because Christ has achieved something great on our behalf. Just like we sang. 
Not our works, but thine, O Christ. So to those things, the people of God just say hallelujah, right? Now, as I close here in just a second and we'll take the Lord's Supper, I don't know where each person in this room stands or where each person listening to a live stream or recording later, I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I, I really feel like probably in every church across this land, there's lost people sitting there. And as we were just talking about the resurrection, I want to point out something else about the resurrection for those of us in here or those of you in here that may not know Christ yet. Acts 17.31 points out something else regarding this resurrection by Jesus. Let me tell you what it says. It says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is good news for repentant sinners who come to Christ for forgiveness, but to those who reject him or set him aside, brush him aside as unimportant, the resurrection will stand against you as a witness on the last day. Every human being will stand before God one day to be judged by this resurrected Christ. And he will have no mercy on anyone who rejects him in that day. That's why the day of salvation is today. It's now. So if you're still living, you're still breathing, hear Jesus' words to you, John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you need forgiveness. You need your sins washed away because they piled up so high on you, there is nothing you can do to get rid of them. And if you will turn from that sin and turn to him to save you, he will. He for, he'll forgive you for every single one of those sins. He'll clothe you with his righteousness that he earned for you. And then you'll have the promises that we've talked about today. You'll have eternal life you'll have the hope within you that says, I'm going to be raised with Jesus one day. So if you want to talk more about that, I'm always available. But let me tell you, do not put it off. Today's the day of salvation. The gospel goes out to you today. Repent and believe the gospel. Right now, I just want to pray for us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for this passage in Mark 9. As we hear Jesus' words, Lord, may, may they strengthen our faith and our joy over what we have in Him. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. 
Lord, we just bow before you in gratitude for this glorious gospel that would reach even as low as us. And as we take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, may our hearts just overflow with love and thankfulness, not as an end in itself merely, but Lord, as a prompting toward devotion and obedience to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.